welcome to Swarthmore Presbyterian Church's podcast. This is your host, Alex Evangelista. We are delighted you are here. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. You are now listening to a sermon recorded for October 17, 2021, titled Finding God in Our Mist by Reverend Sarah Cooper Seawright. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Jesus, where are you? Jesus, where are you? This refrain echoed around the sanctuary as the children searched in and out of pews in a game of hide-and-seek, led as part of the children's time that Sunday morning. It was Christmas tide at the small church in Center City, the short season when we explore the very few stories we have in Scripture of Jesus as a child. The text for that day was the one in Luke's Gospel, where Jesus went with his family for the annual pilgrimage, to Jerusalem on the occasion of the festival of Passover. Luke tells us that they went up as usual. Jesus was about 12 years old at the time. I enjoy imagining into this story a little bit of parental exasperation and exasperation with the parents. For this is the one in which, when it was time to leave, Jesus' parents assumed that he was in the crowd with them back to Nazareth. A day later, they realize, nope, he's not there. Hence the hide-and-seek game for Jesus that Sunday morning in church. Jesus, where are you? When they find him three days later, he is sitting in the temple among the teachers, listening and asking questions. A conversation ensues that I would translate in this way. Mary and Joseph, what in the world were you thinking? Jesus, mom. The children in the church that day were herded back to the front by the loving volunteer who had engaged this search and worked to interpret this story. To wrap it up, she assured them of what we all need to be reminded of again and again, that Jesus is never far from us. In fact, Jesus is right where we are. She said, always present, even when we do not see it. But still that searching, Jesus, where are you? That resonates. As Christians, we have long come to the Isaiah's, to Isaiah's suffering servant, this text we just heard together, searching similarly for signs of Jesus. And aha, we can find them. It's uncanny, really. Even in the early church, Paul wrote to believers in Galatia and Rome, lifting up this suffering servant as indicative of Christ on the cross. The Ethiopian eunuch is studying this very text when Peter comes upon him in Acts, helps to interpret it for him, and leads him to the waters to be baptized in Christ's name. We have in our minds the words of Jesus to his disciples in gospel texts like Mark's, 
describing James and John as they vie for a seat at Jesus' right and left in his glory, right-sizing their expectations and without that very practice eye roll of his youth, Jesus is clear of the path that they all trod. He says to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first of you, among you must be slave to all. Servanthood is central to discipleship. If we've learned anything, it is this. Jesus does not mince words about the struggles that he and those who come after him will endure. It's a given. Jesus' life of itinerancy and healing and norm bending, his torture and execution on the cross stands for us as Christians as the ultimate suffering servant. No wonder we find him in Isaiah. We search those words, but meanwhile, we keep in mind that the prophet did not write them about Jesus. While in 2,000 plus years of Christian community, we can read this with an eye to salvation history, we know that on one hand, while knowing also, the prophet wrote these words for their community first. For as people of faith, we have long come into suffering, searching for signs of God. This chapter is in a long line of references to this very servant already named in chapters 42 and 49 and 50. He is an important figure in this portion of Isaiah. Altogether, it is a word to people who had long suffered exile in Babylon wanting, desperate for, both reason and relief. They wanted a sign in post-exilic life that God had a vision beyond their own, that God had sight of them at all. God, where are you? They had wondered this for years now, and the prophet whose job in any community is part caretaker, part rabble-rouser, wrote God's purpose upon their experience. This is a common practice in working with victims of trauma. Meaning-making gives words to an experience, a lifetime of experiences, for which there really is little meaning to be had. It is also common just in our own experience of suffering to try and make something of it. Years ago, as a chaplain at Jefferson University Hospital, I sat in a late night conversation with a woman with a diagnosis that kept her in and out of the hospital often. As we moved past the routine conversation of tests and procedures, bad hospital food, and just how hard it is to sleep with all of that beeping, she eagerly shared with me a vision that she had. As a person of faith, she said she knew that I would understand. 
Her vision was vivid in her mind, and she explained it as such. It was of a place that she readily called hell, dark and deep. Hands reached up and out, grasping at her. Her eyes were wide as she described the struggle. While at first they felt close, she said, they could not get to her. She herself reached up. And again and again in her effort, grasping for the light that shone above her, eventually she was drawn up. Oh, the relief that she felt. She finished her story with a great big smile. It was her assurance, she said, that all she was enduring now was for a greater good. We prayed together. And I remember leaving there, wondering, was it her ability to trust so surely that there was meaning to her suffering? Or was it my inability to imagine it that left me so unsettled? When we go looking for God and God's purpose in the midst of suffering and injustice, The questions come more readily than do the answers. But wait, does a figure like Isaiah's servant mean that suffering is justified? That it is in some way redemptive in itself? That God needs some form of repayment or sacrifice? Our hearts are quick to say no, but a moment or two more of thinking, and we are not quite so sure. Does this mean that all of the platitudes at hospital bedsides about God's will or short-sighted assessments of how this will all make you stronger, that all of the pain we have caused one another in a history of suffering inflicted, most often by our desires for glory, much like that, of James and John wanting the best seats in the house. Does the prophet's verse that it was the will of the Lord to crush the servant with pain mean that they were, that we are, somehow saved by that pain? This is where the figure of the suffering servant draws me up short sometimes where that call to servanthood and suffering in discipleship can be misunderstood, misinterpreted by us in our own fear of what it means for us, in our own desire to run away from suffering. We want to take it away, and when it appears as it does, we want to explain it, Explain it as a trial through which we were meant to endure, as a judgment upon us or others, as upon the choices that we have made, upon the sins of the world. In these misplaced attempts to explain away suffering in search of redemption, we can do even greater harm, making meaning out of the constancy of suffering among the poor and the vulnerable, glorifying it even, and them for their faith amid it, while distancing ourselves from our responsibility for it. Womanist theologian Dolores Williams 
wrote a number of years ago of the place of black women in particular. The place where black, the black woman stands historically as the bearer. She uses the word surrogate for the pain and desires, the sins of all others. Only in her bearing with it is she seen as valuable. A suffering servant, her redemption comes only as a result of it. These are the sins of our past as we consider how we explain away the suffering we do not want to endure. For suffering is an experience of fragility that we would all much rather avoid. It is not solely reserved for one or for some, but it is brought to bear much more often and inscrutably upon those from whom we may want to hide our faces, those whom society considers of no account. It is a truth of our lives, and our search for God in the midst of it, for redemption out of it, is an honest one. No wonder, when we have suffered, we know that we have little agency, little feeling of when it will end or how or if at all. As we observe the suffering of others, the deepest parts of us are torn in two with sorrow for their experience, with grief and guilt for how we might have contributed, with dread for wondering, could this happen to me? These are the sensitive and vulnerable spots around which we probe as pastors and preachers attempting, much like the prophet, to make whatever sense we can when there is not much sense to be made. It is a profound and ever-present question to our faith. God, where are you? Can we trust that you can see us through this even if we cannot see you? The truth is, that which we call good news, the truth is that God can imagine a future for us outside of suffering, the suffering we cause and that which we endure, even when we cannot. Isaiah wrote a story onto the pain of his people, naming above all things, the power of God's transforming grace that makes paths through trauma and takes on all that is endured so that we might once again be able to imagine a future. God was there, God is there. As it is often said, it is good to say it again. God is in our suffering not to use it to make a point or to receive payment or satisfaction, but to be with us. Jesus, we know, came, yes, to take on the sins of the world, but as much as that, to experience the suffering of it. The woman who could not stop bleeding, the man who could not make his way to the pool, the leaders who had lost themselves in self-righteousness, the man who climbed a tree to see him, the woman who demanded she be seen, they found Jesus. Jesus found them. In touch, he healed them. 
By hearing, he sustained them. In presence, he comforted them. In death, he proved that God not only upsets the tyranny of the power, but is powerfully present in the depths of despair. Our affirmation of faith in the midst of the suffering we endure, in which we cause, and which we see, is that it is not suffering that God wills, but it is life. Life free from the burdens of pain and guilt and injustice. It is life that God wills, not suffering. For you and for me, for suffering servants, for the world we inhabit together, and for the future that God imagines for us all. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon, recorded for October 17, 2021, titled, Fighting God in Our Midst, by Rev. Sarah Cooper Searight. We'll see you soon, and may the peace of Christ be with you.